this is Holly Herndon. I'm Matt Dryhurst. And you're listening to to this, you're listening to the free version. This podcast is completely ad-free and only possible through listener support. That sounds like a standard line, but it's true. It takes time and care to put this together, and without patrons, we won't be able to carve out the time to do this. So if you enjoy this podcast and would like to see it continue, please visit patreon.com interdependence and subscribe, where you'll get access to our most recent conversations, as well as an archive of full-length past episodes. Thank you for listening. Ring, ring, ring. Hey, Hi, James. James. Hey, guys. <laughs> How's it going? Really good, thanks. How are you? Pretty good. Very excited to finally chat to you. We've been talking about doing this for some time, and obviously things have been nuts. But uh, yeah, this is this is fun. And so where are you joining us from? I'm joining you from an island called Egina, where I live, uh, which is in the middle of the Saronic Gulf, just south of Athens in Greece. Would you mind, James, telling the world <laughs> who don't know who you are, who you are, please? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm an artist and a writer. Uh, my kind of long ba- academic background was in computer science and um, cognitive science, so kind of artificial intelligence particularly, which was you know, almost 20 years ago now. Uh, so belongs to a kind of slightly different era but which also seems to be coming back in interesting ways. Um, and for most of the last decade or so, um, I've worked in writing and in art, mostly with a kind of critical view on technology, uh, looking at uh, the impact of things like the internet primarily on society and politics and making uh, artworks about that and writing about that and talking about that. Um of which the main kind of thing was that uh, four or five years ago now, I published a book called New Dark Age, which was a kind of bit of a summation of a lot of my thinking about those technologies. Um, The thing I always say about that book was that, uh, you know, I always thought I'd write a book about the internet and I always thought it'd be a book about how amazing the internet was. Um, (laughs) But I started writing that book between Trump's election and Brexit and uh, it just felt impossible in that moment to write a book about how everything was brilliant. And so it became, a, you know, a bit of a deeper interrogation of the places some of our technologies and particularly the uses to which those technologies were put were taking us. And it was yeah. really intended as a kind of clear eyed statement of where we actually were without attempting any kind of solutions. Um, yeah without kind of saying like, and this is the thing we do sort it out and everything we're brilliant in a kind of Ted talk style. Um, uh, but just to be, you know, really clear about how I saw things. Uh, and I'm very proud of that. Um, I actually just finished writing a kind of afterword for it. Cause there's going to be a new edition of it coming out the next new, year. New dark age. The new, new dark age. Exactly. And, uh, I feel like it's all, it's held up pretty well. It still seems to, still seems to 
um, interest people and, and bring new ideas. Um, uh, but in the last few years, I've kind of reframed my practice uh, around ecology and the environment as kind of the most pressing thing that maybe we should be thinking about, um, which has always been present in my work, but it's kind of taken center stage. Um, and through that process, what I've really tried to do is um, see what I can bring from what I already knew about technology yeah. and the kind of things you can learn about politics and society from technology to bear on, you know, on the, on the current situation. Um, and uh, the result of that is this new book, Ways of Being, which came out earlier this year, which um, is a book about technology and ecology in the broadest possible terms. Um, and uh, it marked, you know, quite a big change in my thinking and came at a time of quite big changes in my life. So it contains quite a lot of quite big thoughts for me. Um, but it was a real joy to put together, to to read and retell a bunch of really interesting stories and to kind of riff on them in various ways to come up with maybe some new ideas about what intelligence is. Um, and And particularly as well, like what new forms of kind of politics and relationships we should be building based on that understanding. So this kind of maybe not change but this kind of like new focus and thinking coincides with your move to the island is that correct yeah well it didn't i mean it, it actually i started i started that process before okay. um but um but it was utterly changed by it in the right. sense that um you know i started writing the book or started planning it out and kind of um sketching it uh, in a uh, kind of fourth floor studio in the center of Athens, which is a pretty urban um, place, um, yeah. with the very naive idea at the time that I could write a book essentially about nature from such a position. Um, <laughs> and various global and local forces conspired to uh, put me on an island, in particular in, in 2020 through so, through so the lockdowns and everything that happened there um and i ended up writing the book kind of halfway up a mountain and mostly outdoors and that totally changed it um and also as a as a as an urban person as someone who lived 35 years in london and then 5 years in athens and was frightened of the countryside um it was also really my first genuine encounter with with the seasons <laughs> with with a, a real closeness to nature that i'd never experienced in such depth um, and over such a, a long period. Um, and so the, 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 all of that is in the book of my real just kind of straight up naive wonder at experiencing a lot of things that I really had never seen or experienced up close before. And, you know, most of us don't and haven't. Um, and so, of course, that informed it deeply. That's really beautiful. It's something I've been trying, like prodding Matt towards for years now, not to be scared of nature. Well, the thing is, I'm not scared of nature, but I grew up in the desert. So I kind of grew up around a pretty desolate, natural thing. So I was, I always kind of like fetishized urban environments, but right. I'm, I'm coming around. I'm coming around. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's, it is really important not to fetishize the countryside or the rural or nature itself either, you know, right. to, 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 and, and, and not to say like, it's only possible to have these experiences if you sort of turn into some kind of, um, tent dwelling, um, kind of, uh, bird spotter that these ex these experiences and that's no shade on bird spotters whatever who are amazing people um but like we're all capable of 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 developing the kind of thoughtfulness and awareness that changes our relationship to to the more than human world um 
wherever we find ourselves. Uh, that just happens to be my particular experience. It's interesting that you characterize it as as somewhat of a return to to themes that you'd explored before. Because if I jog my memory back to when I first in, encountered your name, it would have been around about when you coined the term the new aesthetic. Um, and what I, th- I thought, it, it, to my recollection at least, a lot of the the kind of features of whatever uh, came to be to, 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 to constitute the new aesthetic were all about kind of sensing. Right. Um, and so it, it struck me like reading through the book, I was like, Oh, it, this is kind of interesting. There is this kind of like loop back actually to that period. And I wonder, I wonder if you've, if you've made that connection or if, or, or, or if, if that is as strong a, a through a through line as I, as I was reading. Yeah, no, it, it's completely there. And, and this, this happens to me all of the time, essentially that once I start to look, kind of look back on work that I've done, I, understand it in ways you know that with hindsight that i that i never understood at the time and and the the connections that weren't obvious at the time become incredibly clear and that that's definitely one of them the 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 focus on and how we sense and see and hear and understand the world has been present throughout i mean not least because technology shapes that so strongly um and that's always been something that i fastened on to in my work um you know, how is this thing that we're using to understand the world, the stuff that we're using to think with, you know, how is that affecting our, our vision, our understanding? How does it limit or expand our senses in particular? Um, yep. And so that, that, that's a, a huge theme uh, in, in the new book. Um, the, the, other, the other really strong thing that I only realized really after writing the book, though it seems so incredibly obvious, is one of the, the central things I grapple with in New Dark Age, the last book, is this question of what I call unknowing, mm-hmm. which is essentially the problem of how to live inside massive systems that we don't fully understand. Um, yeah. you know, and in, in, in that book, those are, you know, the internet systems of computation, all of the technology that surrounds us that really no one fully understands, you know, I mean, for the vast majority of us, we have only a sketchy idea of what's happening inside the microchips inside our phones, but even at a global level, you know, no one fully understands how the complete, you know, information infrastructure of the planet functions, what it even looks like, how to even think about what it, how to describe what it might look like, right? There's, there's this yeah. huge cloud of unknowing um which kind of surrounds all of that and that was a that was a problem that i identified very strongly in that book it wasn't until i kind of really had finished this book that i connected it to a lot of my thinking about ecology which to think about also requires a uh, becoming comfortable with unknowing. Um, there's a very famous essay uh, by the philosopher Thomas Nagel uh, called "What Is It Like to Be a Bat," um, <laughs> in which he explores this idea that you know we can never fully know what it is like to be another species, and that's something that I riff on quite a lot in the book. But it's essentially the same question. It's a question of unknowing, um, yep. and 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 I, I sort of realised subsequently that this problem that I'd identified in, in New Dark Age of, of unknowing in technological complexity is, of course, something we've grappled with forever because we live in a world in which we don't know everything around us. We can't know it in that way. And yet we seem to have found some, you know, some of us, uh, mostly, you know, outside Europe and North America in different cosmologies and traditions, found ways of living very comfortably and sustainably and joyously with unknowing. And so I think that was a really powerful subconscious kind of impetus to some of the areas that I was exploring. 
That reminds me of around the 2008 financial crisis when people were trying to grapple with what exactly had happened with these kind of like turduckens of loans, on mortgages on mortgages. <laughs> and basically no one fully understood what was happening and it was this total chaos. And I feel like we're kind of entering that kind of economic framework again, where it's like, it's so overly complicated. And of course there are certain patterns that you can recognize, but it's ultimately a kind of unknowing. Yeah, totally. It's like the more complexity we produce, the more unknowns we produce right i mean i I feel like that's similar that we've been looking a lot at like large language models or large machine learning models recently and like you can kind of again like chart a path where people are like it's probably something like this but but ultimately i guess it's just really good you know it, it just gets to a level of complexity at some point where most people just kind of throw their hands up and are like well we tried this thing and then it the results are just 10 times better you know, um, and then afterwards you have to kind of do this odd retrofitting archaeological process of like trying to figure out exactly why things uh, turned out the way they did. Yeah. And you also need metaphors for describing what happened or what it's doing. Uh, you know, when you're talking, whether you're talking about very large language models, you know, very complex systems or the climate uh, or the lives of, of you know, non-human beings, we don't have direct experience of them and we can't describe them directly. So we, we use metaphors, but it yeah. matters which metaphors you use. It matters, you know, how we choose to describe that and the way in which we tell those stories and which kind of mythologies and histories we draw upon in order to make sense of them, because that is how they make sense to us. And they then inform how we use them, how we develop them, everything else around them. So this choice of which stories we choose to tell really, really, really matters. So, Speaking of which, uh, going through the book, which first off, uh, for the record, you've probably uh, perhaps pursued this needs to be a film series, documentary series or whatnot, like the, the, the amount of different stories and like fun little, yeah, fun little references in each of the chapters. It, it was a very visual experience to, to read. Um, so I, I hope that that ends up happening uh, or somebody else takes that on because because there's, there's a lot to dive into there. Um, you do end up uh, describing or kind of coining uh, some terms. I wanted to speak to you because it, it seems it seems like to follow on nicely from what you just said, uh, speak to you about this one world fallacy. Yeah. Um, yeah, okay. Right straight into yeah, sorry. that? <laughs> it's like yeah. a very specific <laughs> yeah. question. You don't want to give an overview first? No, of, like, I, the I just, of I the just give, I give orders. That's all I... <laughs> I, mean, I thought, no, I thought James would explain, would explain it better than I would. <laughs> Uh, I'm happy to have happen. a crack. Speaking of, of training, all I'm going to do is just say <laughs> random things okay. and then ask you. It's to... just such like yeah. a laser focused question. Usually the first question would be like, would you like to give us an overview no, of no, the no. book? No. <laughs> Sorry, James, fallacy. we're very professional Go. over here. It's all good. It's all good. <laughs> um, uh, well, yeah, big questions like that require like quite extensive answers so i might ramble a bit so feel free to sort of jump in Go again but um essentially the one world fallacy as i describe it is is a kind of combination of um technological determinism on the one hand um which is that you know once we once we build and shape certain forms of technologies they take on some form of their own agency and tend to kind of cre- keep creating the world in their own image which is also a kind of political belief in their certainty and superiority so they 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 converge on a particular vision of the world because they're so powerful and they attempt to remake the world in that image um and because we have such a narrow idea of what kind of computation and thinking is 
And on the other hand, it's, 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 it's to do with kind of human cognition and the way in which we, as human beings, as our species, as anthropos, like approach the world, which is that we understand all of it within human terms. Um, mm-hmm. We're very bad at kind of getting out of our own heads and imagining, like I said before, what it is like to be a bat or any other creature, how they experience worlds. Um, and 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 the the fallacy of the one world is is, is devastating um, because it limits our experience of the world in very powerful ways, uh, kind of computationally and technologically. It um, it tries to kind of bully everything into the preset boxes of databases um, uh, and kind of erases and kind of pretty much violently destroys anything that doesn't fit into its own system of classification. Um, mm. You know, we know that from our experiences of, of all forms of technology. Um, but that's also happening kind of at the cognitive level with, with humanity, that the, the, the um, things that don't fit within our various systems of classifications either don't appear at all, like we're just completely yeah. unaware of them, or we, we attempt to kind of uh, erase or destroy them to make the world more like our own models. Um, that's kind of the one world fallacy. And what I argue against in the book is through various examples is, is the existence of multiple worlds, um, by which I mean the worlds of particularly of other beings. We can talk about the worlds of technology as well as, as separate from the human world. Um, so I talk about things like the fact that plants can hear and remember, um, mm-hmm. the fact that, um, uh, you know, different uh, animal species have different levels of perception that they they can hear things that we can't hear they can see things we can't see they they construct their own mental model of the world in radically different ways than we do and that means in some sense they inhabit different worlds because they're constructing mm-hmm. this entirely different kind of appearance of the world but those worlds also also overlap we do share a world we all live on this planet so what i try and argue for in the book is the replacement of this kind of one world model um with a an understanding of the world that's composed of of multiple overlapping worlds some of which we have no access to whatsoever and yet they exist and they're worthy of our kind of respect and care just as much as the worlds that are that are close to us and sensible to us yeah, this very much lines up with a lot of the thinking that we, when we were talking recently to, well, I guess recently, a couple months ago with Anil Bawakavia, yep. mm. who's writing about kind of as an intelligence as something that's almost outside of us, that we kind of tap in using certain tools. Or um, we watched a film recently on the infinity and uh, yeah. the, the infinite universe. And there, it was really beautiful because it was like mathematicians and, uh, you know, people, uh, physician and uh, not physicians. Um, what's the word? Like <laughs> physiotherapists. <No. laughs> what do you call someone who specializes in physics? Physicists. Thank you. Sorry. I am having major baby brain. Yeah. <laughs> physicists. <laughs> but anyways, they're talking the, the, the beautiful thing about what, what they were explaining is that, the the concept of infinity is so outside of our human comprehension that we just have developed these tools like mathematics and physics and even philosophy to be able to kind of like create these metaphors or to try to find some sort of avenue of understanding that's so far outside of us. But that's where the the kind of beauty is. Yeah, I mean, I probably should have said, said earlier that one of the real starting points for this book was the my increasing feeling that I had for a while that within certain kinds of AI, and I can't, don't even really want to get into what AI is or how real it is or anything like that, but just in the 
you know, I'm endlessly fascinated by how culturally significant our idea of AI is, just yeah, whatever right. that is, whether it's your kind of like science fiction movie version of it, whether it's your large language model or whatever, there is this driving cultural idea of artificial intelligence being a thing. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. And, you know, when I when I started writing this book, I realized at some point I would have to define what intelligence is. Um, And I was really hoping someone else had written a really good definition I could steal. Um, And of course, (laughs) they had, but they'd written many of them. You know, there's so many, many possible definitions of what intelligence is. It's not a settled thing. But what became very clear very quickly was that the main, again, like dominant culturally in our understanding definition of intelligence is what humans do. and so, as before with the one world, that's kind of how you see the world. And this thought snuck up on me quite over quite a long period of time. But particularly as I, you know, learned more about contemporary models of AI, and particularly as I saw them at work in the world, what they actually—not what you know people said they would do, but what they actually did—that um, you know there is there is a fundamental difference between what we call human intelligence, what humans do, and the way of thinking that seems to be emerging in whatever kind of nascent baby steps form in some of these systems of computation. Mm -hmm. And that seems to me incredibly significant because what it says is there is more than one way of doing intelligence. And that, that realization that seems to be emerging from our technologies is coming just at the point that decades of research into non-human intelligence, into the intelligence of animals, plants, uh, microorganisms, whole ecosystems, is starting to enter public consciousness to a greater degree. And we are, as a species, starting to become more aware of the intelligence of other beings. Because if, if we can invent AI, if we can invent another kind of intelligence, that's a neat trick. But the fact that it tells us that other kinds of intelligences are possible beyond the human seems like an incredibly significant and important thing for us to learn just at this point when being able to recognize respect and deal with and and um work with non-human intelligences in the broadest possible sense becomes really for to my mind a a kind of deep imperative for our species i I think that makes a lot of sense right it's like it it is it there is some uh, consistency to the idea that the first other intelligence we might take really seriously would be the one that we kind of spawned right (laughs) Like, um, but, but the, but, but, but of course too, I mean, there, there's also, I wonder, I mean, has there been any work in considering how some of these kind of pattern recognition tools might help us to observe patterns in other intelligences sufficient to be able to translate desires or, or feelings or, or will, uh, uh, from them? I mean, is there, is there kind of a complementary uh, symbiotic relationship that could be generated from, uh, from all of a sudden just being, uh, opening our mind up to, uh, uh, this whole world of intelligence? Yeah. I mean, well, there's, there's the fact that frankly, we do already understand the language of other beings in various ways. You know, one of my favorite examples in the book is the examples of, of honey guides, um, which are these little birds that for um, probably for millennia have worked with people in Central Africa to, uh, to gather honey. Um, mm-hmm. And they, they're not pets. They're not domesticated. They're wild animals that fly into human settlements and use a particular call sign to call out 
um, a honey hunter who will then follow that bird through the forest to the location of a, a wild um, bee's nest. Um, mm-hmm. which the honey hunter can't access without human assistance. So the human will then build a, a fire and smoke out the, the hive and knock it down, and they'll leave some of the honey in return. And also the human can speak to the bird. Um, the honey hunters have particular words, like unique phrases that summon the birds, and that's been shown kind of through various tests that they, they are in communication. So it's really important to point out that we don't need technology or any kind of brand new thoughts in order to communicate in all kinds of ways with non-human intelligences. Yep. Um, there are some really interesting, but we'll see, efforts to use, um, uh, you know, particularly new neural models to communicate. Like Google has a big like whale song effort where they're trying to understand the language of whales quite directly through the use of this. It's being applied to everything as well, like prairie dogs who have this amazingly complex, fascinating language system in which they will describe not only the approach of a predator, but what that predator is wearing. They have different calls for different colors uh, and different sizes and so on. So this, and there's a, there's another, I think, neural network you know, approach to try and like crack the prairie dog tongue, um, which is amazing. And we'll, we'll see what happens with those. Um, I think our focus on language is, is perhaps one of those artifacts of human intelligence that might get in the way. Uh, yeah. We think that everything comes down to language in the same way that we t- try to build symbolic AI as our kind of dominant model. But mm-hmm. that may not be how intelligence actually works beyond the human. Um, yeah. And I think we'll probably have to account for that in time. Um, my favorite, favorite example, because I, I, what I often try to think is, and this is, this is itself reductive, but I often try and think of this kind of triangle model that has humans at one point, more than humans at another point, and then machines and machine intelligence at the third point, right? Mm-hmm. Which is reductive in that it reduces everything that's not human to machines and not people, right? But anyway, but then, but it, you know, it also points out how separate we are from everything else. And so I, I tried to think about like, you know, we, we understand what human and animal relationships look like to some extent. And we understand a bit about what human machine relationships look like. So what happens on the other axis? What happens when machines and, and, and animals are kind of left alone to do their own thing? What happens when those diff- differing forms of intelligence interact without the human? And I don't really know. And actually, maybe this isn't such a good example, but it's such a good story. I'll tell it anyway. One of my favorite um, uses of machine learning to have come about that I'm aware of uh, is part of something called the Icarus Project, which is a project out of one of the big Max Planck Institutes in Germany, uh, which is essentially an animal tracking project. They've been working with smaller and smaller sensors over the last decade or so putting them on various kinds of animals and given us this incredible new understanding of patterns of animal migration and movement Mm -hmm. that we simply didn't have before at at a planetary scale. And that was massively increased when they, when five years or so ago, they actually put an antenna directly on the ISS. And so they have this real global scope of receiving signals from these now, you know, really quite small sensors attached to animals. And one of the things they did was they put, um, uh, they put these little tags, which are basically just accelerometers, on a whole mm-hmm. bunch of animals in Italy, uh, on Mount Etna and in a village called L'Aquila in central Italy, which are both highly prone to earthquakes. And they put them on kind of cows and goats and dogs and sheep. And uh, they just started collecting that data. And after a while, they realized they could predict earthquakes. 
um, that they could look at this accelerometer data and predict hours ahead better than any other kind of earthquake prediction um, mm-hmm. uh, that what uh, when earthquakes were coming um, uh, by the behavior of these various animals. Um, mm-hmm. Now, this is something that's been attested to in kind of folk uh, knowledge for some time. Yeah, There's always been talk that animals behave weirdly before earthquakes, but it's not. Yeah. It's never been like an effective prediction because you can't. The, you know the timing of it and the different animals at different scales and different places. No single person can accumulate all that information, and in fact, no single human can accumulate it even with um, with these sensors. They had to use machine learning to mm-hmm. analyze the data in order to draw this information out of it, um, and in particular, they had to use like banking algorithms, um, ones developed for kind of high finance, for spotting patterns within financial movement. And I like to think of them as kind of like, you know, penitent, reformed bankers going back to the countryside <laughs> and sort of trying to do something good for the world uh, after a lifetime of kind of destroying the financial there. system and everybody's lives. But, there, but it's somewhere in there is an example of, I think what maybe we were asking, which is about what happens when, you know, when we acknowledge these these ways of thinking as as different forms of intelligence and that they yeah. get to interact kind of on their own terms and we get to be involved in that interaction without seeking to kind of control or dominate the outcomes. Yeah, from kind of a selfish human perspective, it seems to make sense. I was watching like a, a conversation. Have you ever encountered the biologist Michael Levin? Um, he's at Tufts. He's kind of interesting. He's, he's developing these things called xenobots. Oh, I think I've heard of them. Kind of biological systems mm-hmm. that, yeah, but... But he had this kind of interesting, he, he was talking specifically about intelligence and consciousness and, and it had a very dry take on it where he was like, those words don't mean anything to me. It's, it's like, I, like I, I care about like uh, complex systems and, and what they accomplish, you know? So, so he's kind of like, yeah. doesn't have like a hierarchy in mind, which actually seemed very rational to me. Um, but he was talking specifically about, uh, you know, uh, working alongside dogs, you know, and how in a sense, you know, if you were to with steel or wood try and produce a tool that accomplished what a dog, you know, exposed to in tandem with a trainer, a training set of outcomes, you know, the dog can perform in a much more flexible uh, uh, and diverse array of of conditions, uh, something that, you know, that wood and steel would just not be able to do up until the point perhaps of robo dogs right i mean but, but, but kind of like up until that point actually working with a companion uh which it, which is is very much what what it seems to be uh what seems to be going on with the bird you were talking about earlier um is in actuality like one an acknowledgement of the innate intelligence of of that animal companion um but number two just also incredibly useful like you wouldn't want to restrict their their innate abilities to perform tax task x or y in fact it, it's incredibly uh advantageous for us i think the metaphor that really hammers at home is like if you make a pyramid out of blocks legos versus a pyramid out of dogs obviously one is way more stable and predictable however if you knock the blocks over they can't reorganize themselves back into shape whereas if you train the dogs they can true <laughs> yeah well, well both those examples and oh, i just want to talk about dogs now but, um, both those examples are, are uh, I think both with the biologists you mentioned and uh, and that attitude to dogs, um, that's the cybernetic perspective, um, yeah. and it's been around for for some time. And I, I, I go into some of the more amusing and brilliant examples of it in the book. So in the kind of sixties and seventies, this kind of group of scientists from kind of a real range of disciplines started started a kind of whole new idea of what kind of intelligence might be as something that was super performative, that was entirely focused on 
you know, what what things actually did, how they behaved in the world, what what behaviors gave rise to things like problem solving, and particularly questions of, of adaptation, you know, uh, like Holly was just saying, like, you know, the dogs can reconstitute stuff, what what gives them that, um, that form of intelligence that allows them to adapt, to evolve, essentially. Um, one of the figures I focus on quite a lot in the book is Stafford Beer, who is this totally bonkers and brilliant um cybernetician there's no other word that covers his kind of range of disciplines um who understood all kinds of weird experiments um he was working for united steel at the time uh, which was then one of the world's largest corporations as a management consultant uh, and he was tasked with uh, coming up with a plan for automating their factories which was very big then i mean it's still big then now but you know back in the 60s everyone knew computers were coming they were mm -hmm. going to change everything and what would factories and industrial installations look like when they were basically run by machines and beer thought uh, that this was very interesting and very likely but he also thought it would be disastrous if these machines were incapable of adapting and evolving he had this mm -hmm. really horrible term for it which he called a spinal dog a spinal dog is a, is a dog that's had its, you know, that's been severed from its central nervous system, where it will essentially kind of continue to stumble on into a zombie like form, but it won't be able to adapt or change in any way and will fairly shortly die. And so he tried to come up with, with systems that would adapt themselves to their surroundings. Um, he came up with this this notion of an automated factory, uh, which in his kind of mad diagrams was a kind of huge system of inputs and outputs that at the heart had some kind of adaptive system. And he understood that the computer systems of the time couldn't be adaptive. In Turing's words, they could only do what they were told to do. That was their entirety yeah. of their function. They were incapable of ad adaptation. And so he realized he had to kind of get a mind in from somewhere else that would do this. And, and that's, that's the, you know, what's become known quite often as the kind of cybernetic part, this kind of melding of different forms of minds. And initially he started sketching out, um, oh, he started by teaching his children how to do quadratic equations purely by playing a kind of hot and cold game, right? By showing that, um, that complex mathematical functions could be done by systems, i.e. children, that had no knowledge of the kind of broader concepts, but, but, but by kind of learning and adapting, they could actually solve these kind of problems. Mm -hmm. So he started looking around for minds that he could kind of entice into his automated factory. Uh, he drew these sort of diagrams of kind of mice mazes with levers and cheese and things like this um he went down the pigeon route for a while pigeons are very good at pecking on different buttons to get different rewards um but he slowly realized that actually instead of a, a single mind what he needed was a, a whole system of minds an ecosystem and at a particular point he built uh, in his basement somewhere um somewhere in, in Lancashire or Staffordshire, uh, he built a huge water tank and started filling it with water from local ponds and kind of in, introducing various plants and, and little kind of microorganisms into this and then trying to interact with them in various ways. So he used... Um, I think Daphnia at first, which kind of water fleas that react quite strongly to light. And so he hung various lights over the tank and put data from his kind of industrial system, you know, um, kind of imports and exports, demand and, and prices and stuff, trying to arrange them in the form of lights. And then the Daphnia would move around in response to this light and would achieve some kind of new stability because they'd move into new patterns or arrangements based on these lights. Mm -hmm. And that adaptation could then be fed back into the system. He also tried it with another little microorganism called Euglena. Um, uh, he fed them iron filings and sort of pushed them around with magnets, uh, but they kept um, pooping iron filings, rusty iron filings, basically, oh, to work out. But he had all of these kind of mad schemes um, that didn't go anywhere with United Steel, 
probably because they didn't fancy the idea of being replaced with pond scum. But um, they, he, you know, he subsequently went on to apply those ideas, um, particularly famously to the Cybersyn system, uh, which was the system he started to build for Allende in Chile, um, which was a kind of socialist cyber, uh, cybernetics paradise uh, that was cut short by the CIA coup. Um, but it had this these various extraordinary components of, of, um, of uh, an idea of intelligence as something adaptive, but also as something kind of uh, connected deeply to the natural world that couldn't be separated from whatever natural and often non-human intelligence was, and also critically had you know, p- political and social uses as well. I'm waiting for the HBO series. Like, remember that thing, um, Man in the High Castle, where they did this counterfactual history of if the Nazis won. I want them to do one for Cybersyn. Like if that actually went through, you know, if it went... Well, the only, the only tricky thing with Cybersyn is by all accounts, it seemed like Allende cut it off even before the coup. Because that's, that's the one sadly... Contested, or? Well, but, but, but still, exactly. I mean, like... Yeah, it, but, it, it, it is highly contested. The, the bits of it were put into action. His kind of idea of a, of, a, of a kind of national nervous system using telex machines was used to like break a... Um, to root around a, a CIA-backed kind of disruption of trucking and stuff like this. So bits of it kind of went in, but it was definitely a kind of a failure not just because it was it was kind of um ended in war but in various other ways as well his ideas were were difficult to work with i think and and largely incomprehensible to other people but they they do represent i think for me the this really important concept that that i return to a lot of the time which is that the version of computation we have and that we think about all the time, the way we do computers broadly is such yeah. a narrow idea of what computers can be, what intelligence is, that so many of our suppositions are so narrow and that there exists kind of just beyond that such an extraordinary range of other ways of thinking, other ways of building technology and other ways of relating to the natural world that we're barely even aware of. Where do you think things went wrong? Because obviously the, the cybernetic example was was incredibly successful. You know, this was something that was coming out of the most kind of fated kind of prestigious institutions in the US in the 60s. It's clearly a part of computer science history. Um, uh, and many of its principles were kind of integrated into, you know, how how uh, computational systems that we're familiar with today uh, work. But where do, you, where do you feel, given, the, given how much time you spent on this, um, things kind of deviated from this more uh, uh, this more kind of broad understanding of, of what computation could be? Well, um, there's a few ones to that. I mean, <laughs> the New Dark Age, I concentrate on um, uh, the, the fact that the computer science as a discipline networks uh, are kind of tainted at birth with the original sin of kind of militarism and imperialism, that they were incubated within defense corporations within the Cold War, and they contain this kind of legacy of paranoia and violence at their heart. And that is something that is very, very hard to get away from. Um, broadening that out a bit, broadening it hugely, and and then to come back to the center, um, it also broadly went wrong with the Enlightenment, um, <clears throat> you know, with with, but very very specifically with things like Descartes' kind of reduction of non-human life to to machines, um, yeah. to to the birth of vivisection and the the belief that everything that wasn't human, and fact, frankly, most if not all humans, could be kind of cut into small pieces and reduced to their operating parts, and that's yeah. a that's a philosophical view that has continued into our development of technology very strongly and it it forms the way we 
this image of the world we have as something mechanistic and ultimately computational and amenable yeah. to computational thought in ways that are hugely damaging. Um, and and very specifically, the moment that I look at in the book is 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 Turing's first couple of papers on computation. Um, in his very first descriptions of what we now call the Turing machine and which he called the universal or the automatic machine, mm -hmm. he actually describes two things. He describes this universal Turing machine, which is the basis of 99.99% of all computers in operation today, and therefore also the basis of like how we think and understand the world. Um, and the point about the automatic machine is, as, as I mentioned earlier, as Turing said of it, it can only do what you tell it to do. It just yep. steps through a set of programs, uh, pre-programmed, it runs through those and then it stops. And that's an amazingly powerful thing, but it's constrained and it's constrained within itself. And in the same very first paper, he mentions this thing that he calls the Oracle machine or the choice machine. And the Oracle machine is a machine that doesn't just run through a step of step of uh, set of stepping programs, um, but at some point stops and asks a question and listens to an answer from outside itself that is connected to the world in some way, that is informed by other ways of thinking other than its own. And all he says in this tiny footnote is, whatever the Oracle machine is, it cannot be a machine. Mm -hmm. And you're like, Thanks, Alan. That's great. Um, and he never—he almost never speaks of it again. And, and the Oracle machine has been explored quite a lot in, in in computer science, but also again in these very very narrow, still computational ways. And for me, has never really been explored as this kind of chasm or schism right at the basis of computation, in which another way of understanding computation and therefore intelligence as something relational as something that requires an interaction with the world, with other beings, um, rather than being an entirely internal process. Because what I hammer on repeatedly at in the book is that you know, intelligence isn't something that just happens in the head. It's yeah. something that's both embodied, that's done with the whole body. And like I bring in you know, spiders and octopuses and gibbons and all these other kind of animals to talk about the ways in which embodiment matters for intelligence. And also it's something that's relational, that it happens between bodies. And therefore also it can happen between people and machines or machines and, and non-human animals and all, in all kinds of other ways that really, really matter to the kind of thinking that is possible. And so that's those from, that for me is the real thing that has shaped, you know, hard computer science forever is its insistence on being a kind of entirely internal and clothed system rather than something that belongs in the world that is made of the world and is that utterly entangled with it in every way yeah that makes sense yeah yeah and it's odd in a sense like that um and this is also yeah in, in the the chats we've had with with anil or even uh, uh reza i feel like we do we do like inch closer to coming to some kind of a conclusion that there is kind of no center of the universe right and we're certainly not we're certainly not at the center of it the more we understand how systems work uh, the more we understand how we are indeed like a product of those systems and maybe like an abstraction from you know in in the in some kind of evolutionary process um from how other intelligences were formed um and i wonder i mean it, are there any dangers in decentering the human and 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 I I say that because of course you you bring up an example of like you know a, a, a very dark time where a certain kind of human was privileged as being kind of the center of the universe and everything else was was determined to be subhuman right um, and I wonder 
if we were to imagine a scenario in which we were sufficiently decentered in our understanding of the world, where where we are absolutely not special anymore, are there any dangers I- 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 implicit to that? Right, like bordering on kind of, I mean, entertaining notions of of like pure nihilism or something along this lines, right? Like like a scenario in which us determining that we're not special means that the person that we can do violence to is is not as special, right? It, it, is where's the dance there? between acknowledging other intelligences and re- and retaining kind of like the sanctity of, <laughs> of human life. I'm not accusing you of pushing your direction, but I do wonder, right? Because of course... Yeah, no, 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 it's, it's a valid, it's a valid, it's a valid question. Another story, I mean, you, you have this sometimes with like, let's say Malthusian understandings, or there are certain corners, for example, of thinkers i i appreciate who for for example like fall into talking about population bombs and uh, theories yeah. from, from yeah the yeah and it, that's so frighteningly common yeah uh, so, so i just wonder i i'm not accusing you of it but uh, but but to spice it up a little bit i wonder i wonder where where how you calibrate that yeah i mean it's 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 a real thing you identify because obviously the, the very first danger is that we just decenter some humans uh, and that the project is kind of incomplete and you retain well, the situation we have at present, frankly, uh, where some humans are considered to be more valid than others, which is how mm. basically the world has always operated and largely continues to operate. And and so there is no um there is no, you know, valid decentering project um without decentering all humans as as equal beings. Um, um and and also I think that the, the other specter that you raise uh, is a very real one, that there's a there's a there's a worrying overlap between both a kind of accelerationist view of technology and a kind of deep ecology that um, that uh, makes humans less worthy, and it shades into kind of nihilism and antinatalism, and to fears of population growth and migration and all of these things. Yeah. Uh, and and I get a worrying number of comments from people who seem to see ecological arguments as arguments against human life. Um, mm-hmm. whether because they um, are somehow you know, basically inherently fascist and think we should just concentrate on saving a small number of people, or that they really believe that the extinction of humans would be the best thing for the planet. Um, yeah. those, are, those are strong and present dangers, and I have very serious worries about kind of eco-fascist futures. Um, but um, but like, you can see this in microcosm with the debates over an intelli- intelligence itself, because humans have for so long defined ourselves by our intelligence, not just yeah, human yeah. intelligence being being intelligence itself, but but intelligence being this kind of singular quality that makes us better and more important than everything else. Um, and so, of course, it's threatening to attack that, um, but only if you see it as a reduction. Yeah, only yeah. if you see the um, the decentering of human intelligence or humans as a whole as being something devaluing. Right? Yep. Those are not the same thing. Yep. It is possible to admit to the intelligence of other beings, to admit to their their personhood, to their to the rights that they hold, to their right to existence, their right to life, their right to to be in the world and do their own thing, without devaluing the human. It yep. doesn't. It doesn't for me reduce my own intelligence, my own beinghood, to admit to the beinghood of others. Yep. It's simply broadening. The, the 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 contours of the world in which we actually live. It makes the world, for me, far, far more interesting. So I think it's a very dangerous thing to conflate decentering with devaluing. Because yep. once we've 
you know, to decenter the human is not to uh, to reduce humanity below the level of everything else. It's simply to admit to the value of everybody else and to treat those things absolutely equally and to really, really care that everybody and everything gets to thrive, you know, and survive on this planet together uh, without these kind of forms of dominance and hierarchy that we've always carried with us. Yeah, you just have to kind of attribute status to enlightenment's the wrong term here <laughs> but um to a let's say a lack of ignorance of 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 living systems um because it, of course the world is more rich and, and we become more intelligent from from being able to to understand uh, uh how much more rich it is than than you know what we produce alone yeah and critically we, we always have you know the the blindness is 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 in the the separation of the human from everything else. Um, and so there is a quality of, of return to this, not a kind of, it's not, it's not that radical a program, particularly if you step outside the European tradition. So speaking of which, given the nature of uh, our shared uh, 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 interests, we have to talk about the ding dong, poo poo, yo he ho and bow wow. And I <laughs> don't know how to properly yeah, yeah. introduce it. You're going to do it so much better, but, <laughs> but it's just so, it's so ripe and prime for, for this group. The thing you're describing is, is Max Muller's theories of the origins of language um, yeah. that are really uh, wonderful. And they're, they're quite heavily contested and, and not entirely approved of by modern linguists because um, he was writing in the kind of late 19th, early 20th century. Um, but um, but they're, they're such a beautiful illustration of some ideas about um, about how, how language how language first emerged, which is quite an interesting thing to think about in terms of both trying to recognize other languages that have already emerged and try to see like the emergence of new languages. I'll just pick one at random. So Ding Dong is, is sort of like a music of the spheres argument, right? That this just mm -hmm. emerges as essentially a gift of God, um, yep. that we were that we were gifted language, that it that it emerges out of some kind of supernatural being. And that's a that's a perfectly good place to start as just like, let's keep the field wildly open. Uh, this thing is just something that kind of, you know, was here and emerged. Um, Yo-hee-ho is um, the idea that uh, language emerged kind of out of our exhalations, out of our... Um, uh, out of a kind of bodily exercise uh, yeah. that, you know, by, um, by working, by, by breathing, by kind of grunting and shoving as we, as we went about our work, we started to kind of compress air out of our lungs and those grunts and exhalations started to kind of form into language. And actually, particularly under Yo-He-Ho, it's a, it's a communal language, right? It's the fact that you have people working together and so yeah. they start to express those things, those grunts and those those eructations kind of start to take on a meaning within a communal context. Um, Bow wow is the idea that um, we started making language, making sound as a as an imitation of the natural world, so that we heard birdsong or we heard cows mooing or, or whatever it was, and we we mooed back, uh, or we started kind of mooing to one another. That it's. Um, <laughs> that it emerges from a kind of more primitive, from the sound of the world itself, which is what makes it my kind of favorite among the theories. Yeah. And so it's, it's you know, what I'm interested in is these kind of theories, is, is, is this idea that language, which is closely related to intelligence, yeah. can emerge, you know, either out of humans individually, out of communities, or out of the world itself. Um, because for me, that's the that's the relational quality you know yeah. and i relate it to things like the honey guides those little birds i spoke to earlier the 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 what is gained by working together with the world and i also connect it to to critically 
new forms of expression. Um, uh, not necessarily new either. You know, I, I write quite a lot about folk music traditions that I know you know a lot more about. Um, things like the the yoik of the Sami peoples uh, from from northern Europe, who who sing with the voice of the world. Their their songs include the sounds of various animals and also the sounds of um uh you know rivers or or ice melting critically they've used those sounds you know in activist con in activist contexts in in the kind of sami protests against environmental destruction engaging the voice of the world to speak for itself to some extent um which i think is really important and it's also a way of encoding information in in really interesting ways i talk in the book about um Tuvan throat singing and how some parts of that tradition encode environmental cues so mm -hmm. that um, uh, a particular sound might evoke you know the wind or the weather at a particular time of year or the sound made by the melting ice that is a cue for a herdsman to move their um, to move their herds you know when yeah. a particular kind of environmental event occurs and so all of these relations with the world are encoded into our communication or possible forms of communication as information but also as um yeah ways of um ways of understanding how we think not alone how our intelligence and our knowledge of the world is intimately connected with the world around us yeah, we went down a yoinking uh, rabbit hole recently because we did a commission with the Finnish choir, and we found a lot of similarities to what you call a holler, where I'm from in East Tennessee, where you're essentially you're calling a turkey or you're calling you know cattle or whatever. It's very similar kind of um, obviously sounds that you're making and techniques. Well, there's that crazy story. I, I don't know. Did you ever come across a guy called Joseph Jordania? No, I don't believe so. He wrote a book that you can get access to. There's like a PDF version of it. Again, uh, you know, uh, what's you you have to include the caveats that in the in the field of linguistics and ethnomusicology and all this kind of stuff, there's a lot of different theories going around. So some people <clears throat> some people contest some of his ideas, but but he wrote he's he's a Georgian a guy of Georgian heritage who lives in Australia. We tried to get him on the podcast a bunch of times. I don't think he's interested in the slightest, <laughs> um, but, but he, he, he has, he has uh, some similar ideas of just saying, you know, that, that singing most likely predates a lot of spoken language and it was very much attuned to its environment. Um, and in there he has some really cool stories. Um, he ties singing with uh, choreography, with tool making as this kind of like process. Exactly. Like entrainment and some, some of the kind of rhythmic habitual uh, uh, habits that, that would have been yo-he-ho, I uh -huh. guess in, in the theories you were describing. Um, he has this great anecdote in, in the book where he talks about a German musicologist taking recordings from, you know, Bulgaria to Indonesia or to Hawaii and people there being kind of shocked. This would have been in like the seventies or something being shocked that the music has all these similar qualities to it. I think right? it was specifically indigenous Taiwanese music and um, Bulgarian music because they have these kind of like really close seconds and like these kind of dissonant, but really beautiful intervals that are um, often used. And so the Taiwanese folks were really surprised that the music didn't come from like a neighboring village. And the argument was that oftentimes it was people in, you know, in more mountain ranges would be using these kind of relationships between close seconds. And so the environment, the natural environment was just kind of 
yeah, was also shaping the way in which people chose to vocalize, and that ultimately would end up would end up uh, influencing spoken word. It's it's fascinating, and that in in and of itself is also worthy of like a really really great film. <laughs> it's like a film I want to see that uh, that doesn't currently exist, but. But yeah, I would definitely, I would definitely recommend Jordania because it, it, in reading over that that segment, I was like, oh yeah, like this is, this is actually, uh, uh, yeah, it seems like a shared thought. Yeah, and I mean, yeah. someone I would recommend in turn then is 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 um, David Abrams, mm-hmm. um, whose uh, whose book, The Spell of the Sensuous, in particular, goes quite deep into this relationship between how we speak, sing, think, and much else, and and the world around us. You know, I mean, his his key image is just really the fact that all sound um is is breath um uh, when it's produced by by organisms that it is the it is shaped by the kind of musculature of our bodies um and it is a drawing in of the atmosphere and an expulsion of it once again and that is is a process of sharing in the world every time we we vocalize or make sound that we're kind of implicitly embedded in that and that he also makes the further connection to um, the ways in which, and this is probably rev- relevant to our early discussions about the kind of original sin of computation. Um, yeah. He goes quite deep into um, the way in which um, early, the transition from pictographs to uh, phonetic characters, um, the way in which, um, you know, in the very first written languages, words were pictures of the things they described. And that was later changed by kind of Assyrian and Egyptian scribes into symbols that described the sound of the utterance itself. And it becomes a kind of solipsism, right? You're no longer describing the world directly, but you're describing the the sound that you make in in describing the world. Uh, It becomes a much more something bound up with the human body and human ways of thinking rather than referring to the world that is actually present and that you're attempting to communicate with in various ways and he there's a lovely little example where he looks at various kind of the very the very tiny ways in which uh some of these letter forms persisted um that um in um some of the first known scripts you have you know what became like the hebrew aleph is a bull's head essentially mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. or what became the hebrew letter koth uh which became our q was a monkey and that the, the tail of a q is is the tail of a monkey and that still exists like on my keyboard now and in in, in front of in, in the computer systems that we're describing that there's this kind of tiny vestigial bits of the world that have somehow kind of continued into 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 these systems in ways that we barely even notice anymore but that are pure um uh ding dong or bow wow wow you know that they're still there that it still describes something that that matters in the way that we think and compute yeah that's wild it, it's also slightly tangential but it 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 one of my favorite kind of like folkloric stories in this kind of vein is uh relates to the scouse accent do you know much about the scouse accent the 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 accent of people from liverpool i know what the scouse accent is but go on no but but that again it's probably a hotly contested uh uh, theory but there's an argument that the scouse accent is is really peculiar because it's it's so distinctive and it's uh isolated to such a small part of the world that um that actually the genesis of the accent has this industrial heritage because due to the industrial uh, uh the industrial nature of work there when people from uh you know wales and ireland and russia and all sorts uh, uh, uh went to liverpool um everyone was congested all the time uh 
And so as a result, like the argument was that everyone kind of had a cold. And so that those like very industrial kind of like economic conditions work their way into the accent. And then there was an article. like So everyone's like passageways was like covered in coal. Like that. And and there was an argument again, this is is probably very spurious, but like the, actually that the air quality improving in Liverpool has actually started to mute the accent over time. Oh man. Um, Ecology is, is anti-scouse. Yeah. Um, it's amazing. Yeah. No, but it, but it is it, it is amazing because again it, it it's it, borrowing from 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 what you're describing in the sense it is also just engendering if it, if indeed it's true right but it, but it is kind of engendering this awareness that these things are are all uh, interdependent and 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 connected right um, yeah and, and I mean it, what it reminds me of particularly is the absolute classic kind of biology textbook example of of. Um, like human forced evolution, which is the changing color of various moths, uh, moths and butterflies, uh, because the trees were covered in soot as a result of the industrial revolution. Right, that you had oh, wow. new, new kind, new animal um, strategies to cope with yeah. the changing environment caused by uh, human um, human action, which of course we know are, are uh, multiple um, and increasing. But but that's what I always remember from the biology textbooks: these little white moths that 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 you know would get eaten if they landed on the soot-covered trees. So they they changed their color to they evolved, and 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 that evolution is really is really key to this. That this everything really is a product of of of, of evolution in one form or another. And it's yeah. a realization I really had in the book as well that. You know, once you start to see um, technologies and the things that we create as being, you know, connected to the natural world in this way, you also see them as being part of that evolution. That evolution is much broader than a kind of purely biological or genetic process, but yep. it is this just ongoing flowering of the world that that includes kind of desktop computers and satellites and cables under the sea as much as it includes forests and oceans and butterflies. That they are all part of a, a, an entirely interconnected and interdependent system of being, uh, of which no part is kind of sunderable from any other. Something wild that I've been experiencing that I guess would fall under the poo-poo category (laughs) (laughs) is that my baby gets the hiccups and -hmm. it's a way for the diaphragm to learn how to function. It's like a, it's just like a training thing. And then you just, I mean, you can't hear it obviously, but it's, it's already starting to form the, the kind of like motions of what will become hiccups outside of the body. Well, yeah, and I wonder too. I mean, uh, and please feel free to not answer this if it's too personal. But, but it does also feel like uh, this turn back in some ways, but also toward kind of ecologies and thinking long term. Perhaps also coincided with being a father. I don't know if that's appropriate to talk about. Uh, feel free. Yeah, to of not course. Talk I mean, yeah. Um, yeah, no. I, I mean, I always say that the you know the the time of writing this book coincided with. And you know these things were intermeshed. Um, moving from the city to a small island, uh, having a baby, writing the book itself, uh, and a global pandemic, right? Yeah. <laughs> Any one of which is going to turn your head around uh, completely, and have all of them happen at once is obviously fairly powerful experience. Um, and again, I always have to be a bit careful because the whole moving to a countryside, discovering nature thing is also just quite dad. Um, and I might just like be aging. And okay. this is just, you know, that is that is also a thing that happens. But it's it's certainly a nice thing that happens. Um, I don't have any complaints about it. Um, it's certainly a time of extraordinary wonder and discovery and and a change in oneself that's totally undeniable. And 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 to be honest, the, the greatest experience of, of writing this book that's, that's 
that's connected to and part of of becoming a parent um is also just the discovery that one can change oneself that one is infinitely changeable that one can become an entirely different person you know for for 20 if not 40 years i was obsessed with computers and mm-hmm. i still am uh, and i think they're endlessly fascinating and extraordinary uh, but the experience of it at the age of 40 kind of poking my head over the parapet and really discovering for the first time this far greater vaster more fascinating or, or as additionally fascinating yeah. is, is 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 an extraordinary one and 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 a brilliant one and and just a really important reminder to me that there is always new things to learn discover and that the, the, the essence of being is change utterly yeah. and yeah. that we are capable of making that change and that in itself is a is a is as far is is as hopeful as i allow myself to be but is, is i think quite hopeful. i think it's a beautiful sentiment you're listening to the free version of this podcast if you would like to hear the full version and support this series please visit patreon.com interdependence This podcast is ad-free and only possible through patron support. Thank you. (laughs) 